Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner today, and it is great to be with you. Bruce, it's great to be with you, our audience that is listening and following along with all of this conversation we've been having lately about becoming your own banker and really what it means by all of the work that Nelson Nash put together in his body of knowledge in becoming your own banker, this book here that really was his flagship work. So um, Bruce, we are continuing on with this series. We've been um, 15 episodes so far on this book. And it's amazing how much there is to unpack as we're going through and really uncovering the true meaning of what Nelson was talking about, what's behind it, how it connects with all the other ideas, and really how we can have our thinking correct when it comes to infinite banking and not being off in left field somewhere. It's really important to always come back to the source so you know if you're on track or if you're getting distracted by shiny object syndrome in some other area or making a a, a major out of a minor deal when it comes to infinite banking. So before we even jump into the topic, um, Bruce, I know you're right now doing some great work with Nelson Nash Institute. And so I'd love to hear about what you're up to today and why you have a different background than usual. Yeah, I'm in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, I'm I'm with five other of the uh, council members uh, from the institute, and David Stearns is also with us. And then and then also a, um, for the lack of a better word, I guess an administrative assistant. And what we are attempting to do is give the vision for the institute uh, into the future, um, because we're trying to do a succession plan. Uh, some of you may have known, or may, if you don't, that Nelson uh, passed away about four years ago. And so what we're attempting to do is um, what anybody would do in business, and that is to have a succession plan. And the other thing we're uh, attempting to do is to stay true to Nelson himself, because there's a lot of people out there that are taking what they perceive as the good parts of of becoming your own banker and putting their own spin on it. And so we are tr- attempting to reel that in. And I would like to say, Rachel, a, the, the main thing that keeps coming back again and again and again is if we want to keep the legacy alive, Nelson used to always say, it's simple, people. <laughs> um, it, it's just about taking the banking function into your life and it's not that complicated. I want to I want to um, warn people today that Nelson, after many years, this this section of the book he thought was the, both the most valuable and the most misunderstood section in the book. He said he said it. He often would say it to people that he wished he would have never put the illustrations in the book and just. Um, and just talked about the concept. And our good friend, James Nethery, who actually is on the council with me, and I've spent the last three days with him, uh, he always says, if you understand the concepts, the details don't matter. Mm-hmm. And if you don't understand the concepts, the details don't matter mm-hmm. because you don't understand the concepts. So the details don't ever 
matter. But everybody wants to dig into the details because of all the noise out there about rates of return, about um, how, what kind of arbitrage am I getting? And, you know, frankly, uh, because that's the language that people speak, I occasionally speak in that language because I'm attempting to, to do a comparison for people. But really, if you just understand that who controls the capital and then who then deploys that capital the same way a bank would deploy that capital, you should have two things in your life. You should have your primary profession and then you should become your own banker. And frankly, your banking uh, profits will be great after time. So that's what we're doing right now. And uh, it's been very energizing. And I think uh, this, this section, even though it's maybe a little difficult to understand, we're going to do our best today to actually explain it. Awesome. So with all of that introduction, today we're talking about recovering the banking function in your own financial life with infinite banking. Really, we're digging into becoming your own banker. We're in the section, if you're following along, we are on page 51 through 65. It's a big section and it's part four. It's called equipment. Well, that was hard. Let me try that again. Equipment financing. And this particular section is really all about how to capitalize a policy and how you can use a policy. And so I want to share a few things here at the forefront of this section, because again, as Bruce was sharing, it's important as you, if you're reading the book, you're going to find that more than half of the chapter is illustrations and it is specific monetary financial examples of funding a policy and using that policy. So if we just zoom out for a minute, what we really need to understand is what's going on here and why is he showing that? And so um, the the first thing is that it's really important to realize that infinite banking allows you to make everything else better in your life. And Nelson will show you through examples how you can have more cash value in the end, more death benefit in the end. Uh, I'm saying not just today, but we're talking about through the lifetime of the policy, towards the end of the policy, you can have higher cash value, higher death benefit. And that allows you to do a lot of things because you cannot just use the cash value during your lifetime. You could even use it as income, or you could, you have the death benefit then that's going to transfer that legacy to your heirs, whoever that may be, whether it's your spouse, whether you've listed beneficiaries as your children, whether it is a charity, whether it's a another family member, and you have this powerful legacy, you have this powerful cash value you can use during your lifetime how do you get the most of those advantages so that you can do the most with it? And that's really what the, the premise of this entire chapter is. He uses equipment financing to talk about doing this. But one of the things you can do is you can finance things like cars. You can finance equipment. You can finance large purchases through your policy. You can also use it for income in the future. You can also have this death benefit to pay out. And what we're doing today is really talking about how you can have the most cash value growth, the most death benefit, and the most ability to use your policy all along the way. And Bruce, we were getting ready to have this conversation yesterday. And I want you to share the number one most important thing that you said this chapter is all about. And then I'm going to share one more thing before we jump into the text. It's, I think it's very simple. You're just taking the banking function into your own life. And what's um, I must warn people before we start with the review of this chapter that Nelson is using this as an example of how it could be utilized. People get this 
chapter confused all the time. They're like, oh, look, the more loans you take, the more you're actually going to make in your cash value. That's not the conclusion you should be making mm-hmm. because all because you can do the same thing if you continue to pay the premiums normally. Nelson was just showing that you could stop paying the premiums and then recapture uh, the premiums by paying the interest, not only to the insurance company, because you owe the insurance company interest, but pay additional interest to you. But it's really not interest. It's actually additional premium. Yes. That's a so clear distinction. Yes. That, yes. It's a very, very important part. This is actually uh, part of the noise out there. And people cannot understand this. And what he was just trying to show was the flexibility within mm-hmm. the, pre, the, uh, the policy. And as we go through this, I want you to think about this. The, that 30-year-old business person was paying $40,000 a year for the first four years. Well, do you think that he's going to, he would be able to continue to pay the 40,000? Probably. That's why he was able to pay the first 40,000. But Nelson was just trying to show you, you could stop paying the 40,000 and then pay some of the 40,000 with additional interest that you were paying yourself. That would become the form of the premium. So he says, don't worry about it, people. You don't even have to pay the additional premium because your banking function will actually pay a majority of the premium. And that is the misconception that a lot of people have on this chapter. They're like, look, I'm recapturing all this interest and this interest is going to to build up my policy and so on and so forth. No, all you're doing is paying additional premium. Yes. Nelson Nelson is just saying, if it's your bank, wouldn't you want to pay additional interest in the form of a premium? Well, yes. Of course you would. It would be like uh, your grocery store. Wouldn't you want to have more peas on the shelf? Because the more peas on the shelf, the more you can actually sell. So just keep that in mind as you go through this with us. Yes. So what I'm going to do is share one word that you shared yesterday, Bruce. You said capitalization. The key to this whole chapter is capitalization. What do we mean by capitalization? We mean how you get money into a policy. So if we zoom out from this whole entire chapter, I'm going to share in my words what Bruce just shared. And it's just going to sound a little different, but it's the same concept. The end conclusion of this chapter is that the most death benefit and the most cash value at the end of the policy, the way you get that is to capitalize the most. And what you can do to capitalize the most is to pay all of your base premium and all of your paid up additions stacked together in year one and year two and year three, all the way out through as long as possible in the policy. So that's the ideal way to have the most death benefit and the most cash value you can use all along the way. Meaning you have fully capitalized the policy. You've paid all of the premiums possible as long as possible in your policy. Now, in our personal life, my personal life, we have a policy that we designed specifically that we could put in as much as possible for as long as possible because we didn't want to shortcut our ability to capitalize. So that is not said overtly in this chapter. He doesn't start from that point. He's starting from an uh, equipment financing perspective 
where here's what instead of fully paying a policy all the time through your whole life and always paying all your base premium and all your paid up additions, what he talks about doing is I would call it short paying the policy, but this is where you're capitalizing over the first four years. That's in the example that he walks through throughout this entire chapter and he adds more layers to it. He capitalizes a policy just for four years only, meaning you're paying base premium and paid up additions, not every year of the policy, but only the first four years. And he uses a $40,000 premium total to do this. 15,000 base, 25,000 PUA. They pay year one, two, three, and four. The total premium going in over those four years is $160,000. Then he shows how you can buy equipment and repay policy loans throughout the policy. And instead of paying back the interest required in the infinite banking policy that is being paid to the life insurance company, you pay additional interest. So he's saying if you could finance with a bank at 15%, but you could finance through your infinite banking policy at 8.5%, don't just pay the 8.5%. He says pay the additional premium or additional interest so that you're paying the full 15% interest back to your policy. We've said this before many, many times. The only way you're able to pay more interest into your policy is if you have not fully paid your premiums. So what this example is doing is instead of just fully paying a policy your whole entire life, he's showing let's fund the full premium year one, two, three, four. At year four, he surrenders dividends or uses the dividend that's paid to you to fund your base premium only. Since it's not quite enough in year five to do that, he also surrenders a portion of the death benefit. So in that case, you see the death benefit drop a little bit, your cash value doesn't drop, and that's completing the funding for your base premium only. And then when he buys the equipment, and Bruce, I saw that you have a caveat to add to that, um, but when he's then purchasing the equipment, he's paying additional interest back, which is paying towards the PUAs that were not funded. So that is the landscape of the picture that we're laying here. But Bruce, let's hear what your thoughts are, and then we can dig in. Rachel, that was a wonderful, wonderful synopsis on that situation. The only thing I would add to that is, you know, you know this very well. So when you use the uh, phrase surrender some of the death benefit to pay the premium, most people do not understand it. So I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain this. Yes, I did not say that properly. Use no, you said pro- insurance. Okay. You, you said it properly. You okay. just, people aren't going to know what that means. Okay. Like, how can that be? So I'm going to give it to you on the conceptual level. Okay. Because the details don't matter if you don't understand the concept. So every time you buy more paid up additions, whether it's with the dividends that are set to, to buy more paid up additions, or whether it's the premium portion of paid up additions, it buys more death benefit. How much more depends upon your age. So I'm just going to give you an example from experience. Now, this is actually an a illustration from 1982. Now, since 1982, we've had the MEC laws put in. For some people, you're going to see, well, there's, wait a minute, there's no, there's no term rider on here. How did they get the death benefit that high? Okay, so we've had MEC laws changes. We've had a mortality 
table changes, I believe, four times, and we've had 7702 or the IRS rules on how uh, you can actually build a policy and still keep it from mecking changed again, uh, uh, I think, in 2017 or no, 2019. It was a late, it, not too long ago. So what happens is when you buy a PUA, let's just say it's $5,000 for a 30-year-old, it will probably buy $15,000 more or three times as much death benefit to add on to your base death benefit. So then because of that, anytime you want to surrender some death benefit, you can just tell the company, hey, last time when I put $5,000 in, my death benefit went up by $15,000. I would like to now surrender that $15,000 of death benefit, and they will credit you that $5,000 to be used in this year's premium. So you're basically just taking out of one pocket, put it into another pocket, but you are surrendering death benefit because of that. So I just wanted to clarify that because a lot of people do not understand what surrendering, what they call values or surrendering death benefit to actually pay the premiums mean. I think you ought to be excited. It shows you how flexible these contracts are. Yes. And I think the value of understanding that lens at the beginning of getting into this chapter is that if you want to put as much premium into your policy as possible so that you can have the greatest death benefit and the greatest cash value and the most capability at the end of your life, the greatest legacy to leave, the greatest cash value to use as income or whatever you're going to choose to do with that cash, you have the ability to fully pay premium and that is going to be the maximum way that you can fact that you can fund or capitalize your policy however you also have flexibility to not pay premiums every single year of your policy and still have it function really well and then add in additional capitalization by overpaying your policy loans so a lot of capability here and yeah, before- that's the the value and the benefit of this chapter. Yeah. I just like to acknowledge everybody that's listening right now. Oh, thank yes. you for your, thank you for your comments. Uh, Fritz, our great listener that tunes in every week with some very insightful comments, uh, tried to keep the conceptual level even better. He says, if you ever pay a loan to a bank and then overpay on that loan, you could have the additional end up in your deposit account or what we would call a savings account or a checking account. And it would be the same concept. The additional interest goes to the cash value or additional premium. What he's saying is, if you have a car loan at the bank and you're paying paying 5% on the car loan and you decide to pay yourself 10%, so then take that extra 5% and then pay it in your savings account, it's the same way as you're paying additional premium. Great, great. um, That's great. Different perspective on that, Fritz. Thank you. And then Dr. McFarland. Uh, says something about, I want to pay down my mortgage in chunks with my policy. Does it make sense to use it as a line of credit? Well, let's, uh, Dr. McFarland, first of all, thank you for the question. Um, You know, I don't know your entire situation, um, but here's the pros and cons. First of all, remember what Nelson always said. Don't be afraid to cap. Well, think long-term. Don't be afraid to capitalize. Don't steal the peas. Don't do business with banks. 
Now, he said that for two reasons, okay? Nelson was an Austrian economist, and he believed in sound money, not inflating the money supply. So that's one reason he said it. He also said he also says it because he's like, hey, if they're making all this interest off of you, then why don't you try to recapture some of that interest into your own banking function? So that's the third. So, doctor, just for the main reason of number three, I'm sorry, number four, don't do business with banks. Then I would say, yes, it makes sense, but I don't know your entire situation. And then finally, rethink your thinking, which Dr. McFarland, I believe you are rethinking your thinking. Now, the downside of doing that, Dr. McFarland, is when you pay it and you're asking about chunks, like build it up, borrow against, pay it down, build it up, borrow against, pay it down, build it up, borrow against, pay it down. At first, you would think that's good. I'm not doing business with banks. I'm getting the banks out of my life. However, you're doing it in a situation where you lack control. Because what you're, what you're doing is you're paying down your mortgage. However, you're not changing the payment because the payment's going to stay the same unless you ask the bank to recast the mortgage. Not, and that just simply means that to change the payment. They can, but that they can add a fee to that. It, it normally it doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. So what I would suggest, Doctor McFarland, instead, once again, I don't know your situation, but I believe in control. Build up your cash value while your mortgage is coming down, and then at some point they're going to meet. Then borrow against your policy, pay off your mortgage. Now you're in complete control. You've eliminated your mortgage payment. Now you take your mortgage payment and you repay it to your own banking system. So that way you stay in control because if something happened, and I had this happen in 2008, one of my clients lost their job and they had their house paid off. They asked, they went and asked for the an equity, home equity line of credit because they had a wedding coming up and they had to pay for tuition for college. And of course, the first question they ask is, what income do you have coming in? They had no income, so they had all their money, not all their money, but a majority of their money sitting in the equity of their home. So just keep that in mind. Yes. So I am glad that you shared the whole thing, Bruce. I was going to jump in and share something, but I didn't want to interrupt your train of thought. The issue with paying down a mortgage or even putting extra payments toward a mortgage is that you have all this cash that's going into the into the mortgage, which is yes, paying down the loan. The loan is reducing, but Bruce said your payment stays the same. What that means, you could have made $100,000 of extra payments to your mortgage. And do they care that you've got ahead on that? No. The very next month, you still have the same mortgage payment due, whether or not you've paid extra, which means that if you end up, end up in a situation where you don't have the income stream and now you're needing to make the mortgage payment because they're going to require it of you or they can foreclose on your home. They don't say, oh, we won't, won't, we won't foreclose because you've paid us ahead in the past. They're not going to take that into consideration. They still want the payment every single month. And so you're not really getting into a, a better situation because you don't have access to necessarily get the equity out of the house. If you're in, my voice is going to bed. If your income goes down and you still have to make that payment. 
I don't know if that was any clear. It probably was just the same exact thing you said. Um, I was no, but, but, trying but to use different words. Different, different perspective is always great. So let's go ahead and Bruce, we can jump into what um, what Nelson Nash actually talked about here. I, I will point out one thing as well that I was thinking through as I was going through this example, um, where he starts from, you know, we have established that a dividend paying insurance policy has all the characteristics of a banking system. You can use it for banking. And then he said, let's refresh your memory on the steps it takes to get there. So the steps it takes to set up a banking system. And then how do you use the system to enhance what you're already doing in your regular line of work? And he basically says, first, select an appropriate plan. So you need to make sure you have a good policy. And then secondly, it is putting money into it and that's capitalizing the policy. So first, you need a good policy. Then as soon as you know that you have a good policy, it's really all about capitalization. And Nelson would be the first to tell you there's just multiple ways to capitalize. You can capitalize by paying fully your base and PUAs into a policy. You can capitalize by additional payments on a loan if you have not fully paid your premium and you have that additional ability to make more payments and that's going to go towards your PUAs. Either way, you're capitalizing. It's considered paid in capital later when when you go to thinking about how much money you've put into this policy overall, if you've put anything towards premiums at all, whether you fully paid a premium in the first year or whether you did it by excess payments on loans that you took, either way, it's capitalization. The one thing that I think is very interesting is that if you did choose to stop paying your premiums after, say, four years, so you just had a capitalization period of four years, or even say seven years or 10 years, but you just fully paid your premiums only for a short amount of time in the beginning. And then you began surrendering dividends or not surrendering, using the dividend to pay the base premium. If you do that, there is a con to doing that. I mean, you might not put in any more of your own capital, but that dividend then has many options you can do with that dividend. But if you use it to pay your premium, it's no longer being applied to your cash value and having the compounding on that dividend, it's, I guess maybe it is still, you're you're going to end up growing that eventually anyways, but it's not getting the same compounding power than if you just had used it to buy a paid up addition in addition to paying your full premiums. Yeah. I mean, uh, Rachel, uh, this is also kind of misunderstood and I understand your hesitation, not because you said it correctly, but you know, it's, it, just think about it. If you have a dividend that's going to the cash value, then you ha- or you have a dividend going to your premium, that premium is eventually going to go to the cash value, right? And as soon as the check clears. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying is if you can have the dividend and cash value, yes, yes, go there. That's you twice have as more. much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. But okay. And then we've got Joe. The flexibility. We have Joe DeFazio just commented here on LinkedIn. The interest paid also contributes to the adjust cost basis. I think he means adjusted cost basis. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we'll get into that a little bit later. That's a little bit higher. Joe's one of a, a very analytical and yet simple explanation guy. I think he's great. But uh, let's keep that for later and then we'll go from there. Excellent. Okay. So Bruce, um, how about I'll let you take this and lay it out how you'd like to um, explore this chapter. Yeah, I mean, I love our listeners. You know, this, this, before I go there, more premium, 
additional interest. I love it. He put it in, it's our buddy Fritz. He put it in parentheses, like it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pushes up the death benefit. The cash value gets more space to chase. Love that. I'm Fritz. I'm going to, I'm going to actually steal that if you don't mind. Uh, What he says grows towards the death benefit with those additional interests. We don't have time to go into all that, but Fritz, that's a great, Mm -hmm. if you listen to other of our podcasts. So what happens here is you want the death benefit to grow over time. Why? Because the cash value at any time is the net present value of a future death benefit. So that means the cash value at the early years is less than the death benefit. And by contract, they're going to catch each other at age 121. So the more you can grow that death benefit, the more the cash value has to grow. It has to. Or has more space to chase that rising death benefit. I mean, yes, yes. There we go. And Fritz, thank you. (laughs) Fritz says, I can use that example. Thanks, Fritz. Okay, let's get into this. And once again, I'm going to try to keep this at a higher conceptual level. So Nelson, he wants you to understand that banking is a business and you should be in it. But the great thing about using a mutual dividend paying whole life insurance uh, company is they're going to provide you with some of the employees that you don't need if you started your own bank. So all the home office people, uh, they're going to actually do some of the function for you as far as you know, getting the loans for you, uh, doing the repayment, uh, investing the money for you, um, for the chief investment officer. They're going to uh, do the administrative work, so on and so forth. Nelson is always looking at this as a business. So then he starts with, suppose this 30-year-old man who's in the logging business. Remember, Nelson was a forester for the par- first part of his life. So that's why he's using this, in my opinion. I never asked him that when he was live, but I believe that's probably, it makes sense. And he says, so he adopts such a plan where he's going to put $40,000 of capital, which is simply premium, Mm -hmm. into his banking system for four years. And he's using a live paid up age 65. It really doesn't matter which product you make or use, excuse me. However, if we all agree that in our lives, even in, if somebody's going to retire, you're going to need a place to store capital. So you might consider a product that has a longer time to make premiums instead of just age 65. But Nelson knew, Nelson knew human behavior cannot visualize in the future very well. No matter how you tell, how much you tell people, it's a common trait that people have a hard time visualizing their future. So he liked to talk about shorter paying uh, products so that people wouldn't stress all out about, oh, I can't believe I have to pay this to 100 or 125. The fact of the matter is you don't have to because you can do a variety of things and that's for another show. But just remember that that's what he's using. With a premium of $15,000 per year for the base and $25,000 for the paid up additions rider. So remember, um, 
from previous episodes, we won't go into today, but there's a base component, which is what's called ordinary whole life. It's going to be paid throughout the entire contract. You are obligated to pay it in some form or another by the contract. It could be by just your cash flow. It could be by uh, repositioning assets. It could be by surrendering dividends, as Rachel already mentioned. It could be by surrendering um, your your death benefit. It could be by uh, borrowing from the cash value. There's a variety of ways. Policy loan. Policy loan. Very good. And then you can you can do what are called paid up additional insurance premiums that some people call deposits, but they're real. And we probably do it on occasion too, but I want to remind you, it is a premium. However, these premiums are flexible. You do not have to make those premium payments every day There's or every year. There are uh, restrictions on that that are different with every product and every company. We're not going to get into that today, but this is a additional that you can make, you're not obligated to make. Okay. So just keep that in mind. And oh, by the way, for all the people out there, that's a 37.5% base. Everybody gets hung up on the ratio of base to PUAs. We're not going to talk about that today, but that is a 37 and a half ratio right there of a base to the total PUA. Then he says, before you go on, I want to make one point here. When you mentioned that the premium is flexible and you don't have to make the full paid up edition premium, I want to point out if you don't make your full paid up edition premium, you still will have a policy. There will not at some point come back to you and say, oh, hey, look, we require additional premium beyond the base to keep this contract in force and to make this death benefit pay out the way that the illustration shows. However, what the reason I, I say that is that sometimes with the variable universal or the uh, different forms of life insurance, they will say, oh, it's flexible. But those policies, if they say it's flexible, can often not have a guarantee. Well, they don't have a guaranteed premium, meaning that they could require additional premium in order to um, fulfill their end of the contract. Whole life is not like that. However, if you have an illustration that shows you a death benefit at age 121 and a cash value at age 121 based on you paying the premiums fully, if you pay less paid up additions, you will not have that same performance. Yes, very well said. I would say that most people that if they if they understand the concept, it makes perfect sense, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you don't put all the money you can possibly put in, you're not going to have all the cash value that they illustrate at the very end. So, right. I mean, I, but there are some people that are shocked about that. I'm um, because they don't understand the concept. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then Nelson says, beginning in the fifth year, no premiums are required because what Nelson said is look at the flexibility because the current dividend now is. plus we're going to surrender some of that paid up additions. Remember, we've been paying the paid up additions for the first four years and it was buying additional life insurance. So now Nelson says you can just tell the insurance company, I want to surrender part of that so I can actually make the premium with the dividend. So he actually says that that we will pay the base premium of $15,000 from that point on. 
Notice the death benefit at the end of the fourth year is $1,684,787 compared to the end of fifth year, which is $1,651,000. I'm sorry. Thank you. $1,651,077. So there's less death benefit. It's about 30000 less, approximately. Yes. So they had to surrender $30,000 to give them credit to be able to pay the premium. So he, he says the difference between that numbers, those numbers, the amount of paid up additions to pay the annual $15,000 premium, resulting in no out-of-pocket outlay. This is called paying with values. You can do that. And you can do it one year. You can do it two years. And then you, you get a, a windfall and you don't have to do it. A lot of flexibility. So this is the first illustration that he talks about just to show you we're, we're not borrowing anything, but you don't even still have to make the, the premium payments. Why? Because you capitalize. You put a lot in the policy at the very beginning. Okay, so that's the concept for the first part. Yes, he, keep, he continues to go and says the cash value 36 years later shows a death benefit of $2.4 million, basically. The death benefit has grown over the years because all dividends in excess of the annual payments are used to buy additional paid up insurance. So the and that's key are- because at one point, the dividends are not enough to pay your full base premium, but then it becomes enough to pay your full premium because the dividends continue increasing over time. And so that's why- Isn't that great? And why do they continue to increase? They continue to increase because the death benefit grows. And you have the compounding of the the dividends from previous years that also get a dividend. So that's why we tell people, don't be afraid to capitalize. Because the more premium you put in, the higher the death benefit. And remember, just like Joe DeFazio, I'm sorry, I think it was, or maybe it was Fritz. Yes, Fritz. I should have known it was Fritz Fritz because we're talking about chasing it. It chases that death benefit in order to chase that death benefit. And you're putting in the same premium. The dividend has to get larger. Mm -hmm. It's a understand the concept. The detail doesn't matter. Okay. So for instance, your dividend, when you first start paying from policy values in year five, the dividend is 6,339 in this example. And then by the time you get out with no additional capital outlay, so nothing more than the initial $160,000 of premium that was put in during the first four years, your dividend now in year 36 of the policy, when he's age seven or 65 years old, the dividend is 71942 That's a lot of dividend. It's, yeah, it's a huge amount of dividend. Now, once again... I just want to warn people, you're not going to be able to model this policy in today's environment, but it doesn't make any difference. Nelson used to always say interest rates don't matter because what you're doing is you're capturing the banking function, no matter how it works. As long as you're capitalizing, you're capturing this, you're going to get dividends, you're going to, you have the contractual right to take loans against, it doesn't matter. Where else can you do this? You're going to be doing it with a somebody's own bank, whether it's a regional or a private or a commercial bank, you're, you're going to do it with somebody else's bank and they're going to make the money off of it. Okay. So, and then he, he talks about the insurers now 
uh, 66 years old and is considering retirement. Nelson, remember, doesn't like the word retirement, but he, you know, which we'll talk about in the next chapter. Yeah. Which (laughs) he actually, which he actually, though, he didn't, he didn't look down on people that retired because Nelson had a libertarian type of view. You know, you don't tell me what to do. I don't tell people what to do. And that, we I, we have the same view. Our values, we're not going to throw our values on you, but we are going to tell you why we believe what we believe. Mm-hmm. Well, Nelson didn't believe that you should retire because retirement to him is to take out of service, take you out of service. And he goes, who, who in the heck ever wants to be taken out of service? He also said that he believed, he believed that it extended his life because he had a history, a history of heart problems in his family. A big time. His father died at a young age um, of heart disease. His brother died of a young age of heart disease. Nelson had bypass surgery, so on and so forth, but he kept active. He kept moving. His mind was sharp, even in his late 80s. So he believed that was best. But he, but he also believed that all this wisdom that people obtain should not go out of society. He thinks retirement hurts society because all this wisdom just leaves. It, it's not passed down to the next generation, which could help society. So, but he says, if you want to retire, you can now withdraw $92,000 per year in dividends to meet your needs at that point, no matter how long he lives. So suppose he dies at age 85. At that point, you recovered all the premiums you paid in, 160, plus 1.588 million and you still deliver $2.4 million in death benefit. Why? Because you capitalize at the very beginning. Okay. So the That's next profound. part. I mean, and even if we're in a different interest rate environment with different amount of dividends, the point is you can capitalize a policy. It grows. You have increasing dividends. Those dividends can be used in many different ways, but at the end of your life, if you wanted to use this policy for income, you can withdraw up to your cost basis, which in this case, in this first example, was 160000 Anything past that is taxable. But the value is that this, this example shows taking out 160000 in income through dividends, in addition to taking out $1.588 million, $1.588 million, and still having that death benefit. I mean, that that is a policy that's performing exceptionally well and doing a lot of good for somebody who just put in $160,000. They're able to take all this income. They're able to give this death benefit. And that's all because of the banking function. Absolutely. And before we go, Fritz makes another point. We'll, we'll cover it real quickly. He says that it's all about transforming your thinking. Yes. Remember, rethink your thinking, the fractional reserve system. And if you don't know what fractional reserve system is, I would encourage you to uh, read the book, How Privatized Banking Really Works, and go mm-hmm. on Amazon. Now, listen, it's not, it's not a short book, and it's going to dive deep into the banking function in the world, and it's going to be eye-opening to you, okay? But basically, we do not have anything that backs our money now. It's just on the full faith of the government being able to tax and pay off the treasuries that are used to print money. Not even, not only our country does it, but every major country in the world. A fully reserved system that Fritz is talking about is 
you would have to have something backing that and you could not increase the money supply unless you increased whatever was backing it. When, we don't when have gold that. was backing our money, that was a different story. But right now there's nothing backing it. It's a fiat but, currency. But insurance companies have a hundred percent reserves backing the loans. Mm -hmm. That's why you can make the loan without having to qualify for the loan because they're like, that's all right. You've already given us money equal to the amount of money you can you can uh, be loaned and you're making money on your money. So your cash value is growing. We'll loan you the money at however much cash value you have. So the more money you put into your system, the more loans that you can get. You the can't, do that. can't do that at a bank. You can't yeah. do that at a bank because you have to prove to them that you're going to be able to uh, pay. And sometimes they get, well, I shouldn't say sometimes, most of the time they get collateral, whether it's your car, whether it's your home, but they know that the home and car are not guaranteed to go up. Matter of fact, the car is going to go down right away. The home probably will go up, but it's not guaranteed. So they're not going to give you all the cash that you have in your, in your equity. They're going to reserve that in case something goes wrong. And they're going to make you prove that you can pay it back. Why? Even though they have the collateral, because they don't want to be in the house selling business. Okay, That takes away from their profits if they have to do this. And they could actually lose too. So that's why they require more collateral and also, you have to pay it back by contract. I was just going to say, if you go take a $1,000 loan from the bank, they only need to have, I, I think it's like a 10%, right? So they would only need to have about 10 or $100 in the bank to be able to make a $1,000 loan, meaning that it's not sitting in the vault. $1,000 is not sitting in the vault for you to be able to borrow $1,000. Whereas if you take a loan from an insurance company through your policy, a $1,000 loan, they have the $1,000 sitting inside their policy. Exactly. exactly. Very good. And I've, I made this comment before. I've actually gone to the bank and asked for money in large sums. And it's like the bells and whistles go off. It's like sirens. The, the, uh, the people at the tellers, they, they don't know what to do. And then they have to come to you and say, we, don't, we cannot give you that money because we do not have that much money in the vault. And, and plus, they cannot go down under a certain amount at that time. And Rachel, there are some times when people, they can do zero capitalization with the bank, um, fractional reserve. The rules have really changed. And I'm not saying they have changed for the better. Okay. So then, as we continue along, he says, you could decide to draw larger income from the dividend credits, but doing so would diminish the capital base and the ultimate death benefit. That makes sense, right? Because every time you take more than the dividend, you now are taking some of the cash value in the form of a loan, or you could do it just withdrawal. There's pros and cons of this. Mm -hmm. Let's just, but it just makes sense that if you do that, then the death benefit is going to go down. And he points that out. Conversely, he says you could decide to draw a smaller income from dividends, in which case the capital base would increase, and so would the residual death benefit. And what he's saying there is now you don't take $92,000 of dividends, you only take 70, and so that additional uh, 
$22,000 would go towards the cash value, thus also buying more paid up additions and your actual death benefit would grow. The total amount of the cost basis will actually grow. Uh, and the cost basis is how much you're actually putting into the policy. And this is what Joe was talking about. And we're not going to dive into this uh, too deeply today, but any withdrawals that go above the cost basis would become taxable. You can get around that by simply saying, once it hits that point, the insurance companies, the good insurance companies will actually say to you, do you really want us to send this to you because you're above the cost basis? <clears throat> and all you have to do is simply say, no, but send me a loan. And then the loans are not taxable. So that's something to consider. Okay, under the this scenario depicted thus far, the income will be become income taxable because you've gone over the over the basis. And once again, that's not necessarily a bad thing because wherever it was wherever you were storing it before was probably going to be taxable. Whether you stored it in a savings account that was making interest, any of that interest you made in a savings account was taxable. If you had a brokerage account and you bought stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and they went up in value and you sold them, that would become taxable. And any um, tax deferred account, if you left it in there, it's definitely becoming taxable. So taking a taxable withdrawal is not the worst thing in the world. A lot of times people, I, I say this, and it's not my saying, I've heard it before, you let the tax tail wag the dog. You're so worried about the taxes that you, you do not move forward with enjoying life. But uh, there is a way around this. No matter how you look at it, <clears throat> the above is pretty good scenario. And that's the point I'm trying to make. Whether you have to pay taxes or not, it's a pretty good scenario because you're getting out a lot more capital than you actually put in at the very beginning. But then it draws on the young man. I'm paying 16000 oh, excuse me, it dawns it on the young on man, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, I'm paying $16,000 per month to that pool of money for the equipment used in my logging business. And, that, and remember, he actually used a, a finance company. The finance company, the gatekeeper, is borrowing the money they lend from me from life insurance companies. And that's not unusual <clears throat> because mortgage-backed securities, a lot of times they borrow the money from uh, life insurance companies. Life insurance companies will charge them an interest. They will add a little bit of interest to it and then uh, actually charge that to the company because they don't have capital, the finance company. So they borrow the capital. Remember, all capital has a cost. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they borrow capital from insurance company. Insurance companies lend capital for mortgage companies to then go get a uh, lend it to a person to buy a home. They don't. People don't realize that insurance companies actually do, uh, lend money to outside to make money. So he says. Um, <laughs> he says it's borrowing the money to lend me from the life insurance company, adding a surcharge and retailing it to me. So they're making money off the, the spread that they're charged from the insurance company. It says C figure 2.1 and exhibit one. Uh, obviously on this podcast, you can't see that. That's, that's fine. 
why that is the equivalent of my wife, Nelson's saying, that's the equivalent of my wife shopping from groceries at Winn-Dixie when we already own a grocery store. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't you actually go to your own bank? Why are you going to another bank? You want to recapture, just a side note, Winn-Dixie, uh, this was in the early 80s when Dixie has now been, I'm sorry, this was in the early 2000s. Uh, when Dixie's actually recently been been bought by Aldi, and oh, I um, didn't know that. Yeah, and the reason I tell I'm telling you this is Nelson's going to point out in this chapter that businesses come and go. Mm-hmm. So there's there, and he's dead now, Nelson, but he didn't realize he had a profound a vision of the future where Win Dixie is now gone. Um, so he asked his life insurance agent, "Can I finance a logging truck from my cash value?" Well, of course he could, because he had $157,000 in his cash value. And he outranks all possible borrowers in the access of this pool of money that must be lent to him. Okay, let's review this. First of all, what he means by outrank is the insurance company's not going to lend money to a finance company if it has more requests to lend money to its own uh, policyholders. Why? Because the policyholders have a contractual right to take a loan from the insurance company. Now, there's a caveat there. Why do they have a, ca- uh, a contractual right? Because in order to do business in every state in the United States, an insurance company must have that provision in the contract. People say that all t- to me all the time. Why do they allow these insurance companies or force these insurance companies to actually do this? That's the way the charter was set up at the very beginning. Okay, so he says, exhibit one is is the exact copy of the financing package on the new Peterbilt truck from a well-known finance company that buys blocks of money from the life insurance company. Add up an upcharge, because the finance company has to make a a profit and retail to the people. And he says it's outside this wall between the, the general public or the policyholders and the insurance company. This event occurred in 1984. So don't get hung up on the illustrations. Interest rates were different at that time. Policies were different at that time. But this event occurred in 1984. He paid 65790 for the truck with a $13,190 down payment and finance $52,600 for four years. Well, we all have done financing before. So what they do is they amortize this debt, requires a monthly payment of $15,002 per month. It says nowhere on that page is there any indication of an interest rate being charged. Okay, so there's there's no interest rate. But he says you can easily calculate it. It's slightly above 15% annual percentage rate. Back in the early 80s, inflation was out of control and there were high interest rates. So he says at the end of four years, this person ends up paying $72,096. He financed $52,600. So Nelson uh, was self- deprecating, he says, my third grade arithmetic 
reveals that he paid $19,496 in interest over that four-year period. Let that sink in a little bit. Okay, so that's $19,496 of interest he paid in. So On remember, a $52,600 loan, which then he correct. works out and says it's 27 cents of a dollar. I mean, it's a it's almost a third. Correct. And and from previous chapters, you remember that most people are have 34.5% going out at the time the, the book was written. So he says, if you divide this, and that's where Rachel was going, divide the interest out, it's about 27% or 27 cents for every $1. So that's 27%. So he says, if he pays off the entire indebt, uh, debt over four years, if he trades in a truck in two years, then the ratio is much higher because most of that interest is being recaptured early on when the note is actually the highest. Makes sense, right? 15% on 52,000 is less than 15% on 27,000. And now he says, if he pays off the entire in four years, he trades in a truck, he is now making a so-so living in logging and the banking business is living well off of him. So he's making money in his logging business, but the bank that financed his truck is making 27 cents on every dollar that they lent him. So what happens at the end of the four years, clue, clue Nelson says the odometer on the truck reads something like 400,000 miles. Remember, these are large dump trucks that are running all the time in the logging business, probably 24 hours a day in some cases, or at least 16. They're going back and forth from the woods to the, to the sawmill, back and forth, back and forth. He is Now he says he's back at the Peterbilt place, trading in his old truck for a new one. This time, the dealer may allow him the trade-in value of something like 18000 So remember, uh, at the very beginning, it was... 52, I'm sorry, 65,790. You trade it in. Now you take that off. But of course, the trucks go up. They're going to cost more over those four years. So the price of the new truck has gone up too. And he keeps financing 52,600 on every truck he buys. Look at how you are building equity in your equipment, he, his accountant says. Nelson says he has an accountant. And he says, that's true, but he is building equity in the wrong place. He should be building that equity in his banking business that finances his truck. How is mm -hmm. he building that's equity? That's key. Exactly right. How is he building equity? Because he's paying additional, he's being an honest banker. He's paying back his, remember, if he just pays back, he's still building equity but he's paying back and he's paying back additional interest in the form of PUAs. Everyone, once again, Nelson um, talks about this. Everyone should be in two businesses, the one that makes you a living and the, and the banking business that finances whatever you do for that living. One of, two business, one of the two business, banking is the most important. Business come and go, like I was talking about Winn-Dixie, but banking is eternal. And what Nelson is referring to there, there is you, your, your need for financing over your lifetime continues because we're always buying things. So, Rachel, I'm going to 
wrap up there for today. After I look at a couple of additional comments. Yes, we've got Latanya Jones saying thanks for the book recommendation. That was how privatized banking really works. And then Fritz says that's why some nations have reached hyperinflation. It's not by accident. It's by design. Yeah, Fritz, uh, that's for another type of a podcast, but you're absolutely right. And I appreciate all the input today. We had a great participation. We had a lot of people live today. We're going to continue this into the future. And we're going to get into it a little bit more. I want to encourage everybody to buy Nelson's book. This is, this is the truth. It's the most simple explanation. If you rethink your thinking, why is it the most simple explanation? Because Nelson starts out about the human behavior. You have to rethink your thinking. You have to change the way you do things. And, and realize that taking the banking function into your life has a lot of benefits, not only a financial benefit, but it has you're under, you're taking control of your life. So remember that. So if you like the content today, please make sure you subscribe. Please share this. Continue to make uh, comments. We're trying to get this out to everybody so they can take the banking function into their own lives so that they can, can take control of their own lives and actually pass this down to the next generation, not only the concepts, but then the death benefit to the next generation. Rachel, any closing comments from you? Yes, Eli was joining us today here. So, Okay, great. I can't turn it far enough down here. So (laughs) um, we are going to continue on with this chapter, and then there's just so much more additional content. I was reminded at the beginning of the... um, at the beginning of the episode today, when you were talking about how a lot of times people like to take one idea out of the book and say, well, hey, this is the most important thing. Let's throw out the rest of it, or let's just focus in on one detail. And I'm going to say something about that because I think often we refer to this book as the Bible of infinite banking, not the Bible itself, but the Bible of infinite banking. And it's the same thing in reading the actual Bible. If you say, well, hey, we're going to just take this verse because we like what that means and we're going to throw out all these other ones because we don't understand them or because they seem to rub us the wrong way or they're confusing. Well, that's not really looking at the whole of scripture and being able to align our life with the Bible. So in the same way with Nelson Nash's book, it's really understanding all of what he meant and not just reading it and understanding the actual words, but what's behind the words. And I think that takes some analytical and literary skill to really be able to understand his perspective, why he's trying to communicate what he's communicating. And that's what we're trying to uh, really tease out through this, through these, this podcast. We're not adding to it. We're not taking parts and throwing away other parts. Really what we're looking at is not just what he said, but what he meant by what he said so that we can help you really understand the concept and be in a position of using it well and not struggling through the examples or pulling one piece out and saying, well, I don't really understand that part or why he had that in there. And so really, um, we didn't do this at the beginning of the show, but we want to always ask for your questions. So if you have questions about what we've discussed today at any point, please pop those into the chat. And um, Latanya, thank you for saying application is key. Thank you both. Yes, application really is key. So this is the manual, becoming your own banker here. I'm looking at my book here. This is the manual. And we want to say, well, how do we apply that? How do we apply in your life, in your circumstance, and with your set of financial operatives, really with what you're working with and what your goals are? How do you 
make this work for you and how do you maximize its benefit in your life? And so that's what we're talking about today and, and throughout this series. So in closing, we're just going to say, if you have questions, pop them in the chat. If you're not live and you're listening later, you can still put them in the chat forever, wherever you're watching. You can also email us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com. If you have a specific question for yourself personally, or if you are ready to go ahead and book an appointment and figure out how to make this work for you, how you can apply it, how you can capitalize a policy with your circumstance, whether you're starting a policy or whether you are in the middle of a policy and trying to figure out how to pay that properly or how to take a loan or what to repay or how to think about the capitalization from a flexible standpoint and saying, I'm in the middle of my policy. How, what do I do now? We'd love to talk to you. And you can book that appointment at themoneyadvantage.com. And there's a link right on the front page where you can get onto our calendar and talk with an advisor about your circumstance. We'd love to do that for you. So in closing, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd and build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.